This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast with Kella. If you're new here and you haven't listened in before, bi-weekly, we talk to security practitioners, perhaps like yourselves, about your experience in the industry and about trends in cybercrime. Today, I'm happy to say we have Edward Kovacs. Edward Kovacs is a contributing editor to Security Week. Edward has prolific education and extensive information about this space. And recently, I've had some great conversations with journalists who have something different to say all of the time. And I'm really excited to hear what Edward has to say. So thank you, Edward, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I've given no background (laughs) to you. I say, why not hand the mic over to you, Ed? Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure, sure. So I'm a contributing editor at Security Week, and uh, for you to get a better understanding of what I do, I'm going to tell you a few things about Security Week because I'm very involved in the entire company. So Security Week is a leading provider of cybersecurity news and information to global enterprises through its websites and uh, through in-person and virtual events. So these events include the ICS Cybersecurity Conference, which is a favorite project of mine because I like the industrial space. And the virtual events that we host almost every month cover a wide range of topics such as ransomware, supply chain, zero trust, uh, threat detection and response, uh, cloud and data security, and uh, cyber insurance. I mentioned earlier that industrial cybersecurity is one of my favorites because I actually have a background in engineering, so I've actually been in a factory. I know everything what those industrial devices look like, so it's not an abstract topic for me as it might be for some people in the industry. That's helpful to know. Many would listen into this podcast and say even the discussion we're having today would be somewhat abstract for them. So we're all starting from a base level of knowledge somewhere. I'm glad to know that you have that experience. Could help lead our conversation in terms of what you cover. And that's exactly what I'd like to start with. You started covering cybersecurity in 2011. That is over a decade of experience up to date. And before that, from my understanding, you were teaching. So what motivated you to move into journalism? And what continues to motivate you to keep your focus here? While I was uh, working as a teacher, I was also doing some freelance writing for some tech blogs, but I was covering computers and phones, not, not anything related to security. I've had a passion for writing for a long time, even before I became a cybersecurity journalist. Then in 2011, I was given the opportunity to start writing cybersecurity news. And when I wrote my first article, I didn't know a lot about the industry, but I thought it was a fun topic to write about. So initially, I was writing articles aimed at consumers. 
And uh, many of these articles were read by tens of thousands of people. And uh, some of them were actually leaving comments saying that uh, my article helped them avoid getting scammed. So as I wrote more and more articles, I realized that uh, my work can actually contribute to making the internet safer. Uh, now that I'm at Security Week, I write for an enterprise audience. But I feel that my contribution is just as important because now we are providing information that uh, can help organizations improve their security and avoid getting hacked. By now, I've written uh, more than 10,000 articles in the oh. okay? And uh, I still don't find my job boring. There's something new and interesting every day. And uh, I see the cybersecurity sector as a unique and very interesting uh, part of the tech industry. And it has been a rewarding career so far. I'm happy that it's been rewarding. You're right. It's never a boring day. That's for sure. Do you still find yourself writing for people? This is not to say that organizations are not composites of individuals. Of course, that is the case. But oftentimes, I'm confronted by questions from individuals who ask me what my career is and what it is I do, but how to keep them as individuals secure, how they can stop a scammer and then get into other, you know, more interesting questions. Do you still find yourself writing for them since it's been so helpful? Yeah, so even though I write more technical articles that a regular user would not understand, whenever I'm writing something, I do imagine a person reading that and thinking to themselves, hey, this could be helpful. In oh, life. all right. Yeah, so I don't see myself as writing for an abstract entity like a, a company or a big brain. I do see the people behind the screens. So I'm writing for them. That's a wonderful perspective to have. Sometimes that perspective is divorced as well when people are writing about cyber threat actors. And then there comes this almost dehumanized form of attribution and writing and thinking. When you are covering cyber threat actors, cyber crime actors, many have different definitions here, but we get the point. When you're covering them, how do you think about them? Honestly, I've often thought about them as humans, just like me. I remember uh, the first big disclosure, the first time a company in the United States published the name of a threat actor, I think they were from China. So they said, hey, this is the guy. He's been one of the leaders of an APT group, and they published pictures from his home, from his social media, pictures of his children. And the first thought was, why would you do that? So that's a person going to their job. They're not an evil person. That was their job. They were hired by the Chinese government to conduct espionage on their behalf. But still, to get into their personal lives, to publish pictures of their children and their family and what they're doing in their free time kind of seemed low. So now I always uh, give it a lot of thought before naming someone in an article when it comes to attribution, a person, I mean. The way you approach this is with a lot of empathy, and that's to be appreciated, I think. All right. So you are writing for 11 years, thinking about the individual, and that means the individual on all ends. You are perhaps also, as I, as I assume, collaborating with many cyber threat researchers and many other journalists. 
looking at the way the two conduct their own investigations, their own analysis, what can you say is different between journalists and cyber threat researchers? And what has been your your experience and involvement with the two? I think everyone uh, has their part to play in this. So uh, when it comes to the relationship between uh, journalists and uh, security researchers, I think it's a, a partnership. All us journalists need researchers to write good stories, and the researchers need journalists to make their work known. So uh, journalists can also help researchers when they want to get uh, the attention of a vendor, for example. It's uh, not uncommon for companies to ignore researchers who try to report a critical vulnerability or a breach. But uh, those companies often become responsive when a journalist tells them, hey, we are writing an article about this researcher's findings. And uh, then they realize they can't just sweep it under a rug like they normally would. Oh, would you mind expanding a bit more on that? The sweeping under the rug bit? Even this week, we've had uh, journalists uh, reach out to us because uh, they found the company exposing their customers' details. So there was an unprotected server and the researcher found it. They tried uh, contacting the affected company, telling them, hey, you're exposing all this data. At one point, the companies did secure the server, but they wouldn't uh, give any credit to the researcher. I think they hoped that this would not come to light. And uh, once I reached out to them telling, hey, we are going to publish a story on this, you can't hide it. So they immediately started issuing statements how they take security seriously and <laughs> all that. But before we reached out to them, they were, weren't informing their customers. Then they said, oh, we're, we've started talking to authorities and we're going through the process. But when a researcher who isn't uh, well-known reaches out to you, you, as a company, you might uh, think that uh, it's an option for you to just ignore everything and hope that it goes away. So uh, mm. this is a very important part on how we help researchers. And of course, they also help us by coming to us with their stories and helping us publish content and at the same time raise awareness on some very important things. Still so unfortunate that companies continue to fear the fallout of their, let's say, maybe poor security posture or their blind spots and choose to sweep things under the rug, especially the truth, which is already known by parties that have their own self-interest, not the company's continuity interest at heart. How this is a repetitive trend is beyond me. Sometimes, though, when I then say, well, humans have either fight or flight, to run to as per options in response, it then makes some sense. I'm glad that there's a strong partnership among journalists and cybersecurity researchers, though. When working with them and throughout your career, you have obviously seen trends evolve in the cybercrime space. What are some of the cybercrime underground trends that you have seen in recent days and some that you've seen evolved throughout your career that have been poignant, that stand out? Well, uh, for example, uh, 10 years ago, when I started uh, 
writing about cybersecurity news, it was easier for uh, law enforcement to catch hackers. For one, uh, it was uh, not as easy as it is today for hackers to communicate securely. Chat applications that uh, offered end-to-end encryption were not widely available. So hackers were often caught because they made basic mistakes like exposing their real IP address or using their personal email account for cybercrime activities. And it was easier for law enforcement to obtain valuable data from email, social media, and uh, other online service providers. I'll give you an example. Ten years ago, I was interviewing a lot of hacktivists. Of course, many of them were actually cyber criminals because while on the surface they appeared politically motivated, they were also making money selling the information they stole while acting as hacktivists. Really? So at one point, many of these hacktivists stopped talking to me. They refused to give me any more interviews because uh, they believed I was working with the FBI. And that happened after I, I talked to a high-profile hacker on Twitter. We, we talked to through direct messages. And he was arrested and charged after I had published a few articles about uh, his attacks. And uh, the court documents that were made public by the Justice Department when he was charged included my private Twitter conversations with the hacker. So uh, since uh, this was a high-profile hacker, many members of the hacking community read the court documents, saw my name there. They immediately assumed I was working with the FBI and helped them catch this hacker. In reality, I've never spoken to the FBI. So the most likely scenario is that they went straight to Twitter with a warrant or whatever they need to get the private message directly from Twitter. Now, it's uh, 10 years later, it's much more difficult to obtain uh, hackers' data from service providers, mainly because as uh, these service providers try to improve user security and privacy, their products are designed so that uh, not even the company that owns the product can gain access to customer data. That's why governments are putting pressure on tech companies these days to implement encryption backdoors. Also, cyber criminals now have more tools and services at their disposal to remain anonymous. There are many chat applications that offer end-to-end encryption, and uh, this makes uh, the job of law enforcement uh, m- more difficult. No privacy for all. <laughs> the all is very general. <laughs> There's the delta between privacy and security and all of our expectations. I feel for you that that had to happen, having your ethos in a community where you can gather a lot of intelligence for intelligence purposes, pretty much destroyed. It's challenging because I understand from many of the conversations that I've had already that your reputation in the cybercrime underground is everything. And that stands above all. And then your acumen is attached to just that. So given that you're a journalist and you're not a cyber criminal, from my assumption here, just on this call again, given that perhaps it doesn't hold immense, incredible weight, so much is in front of our eyes, and it really depends how you look at it, and that gives you your intelligence. So I'm sure it's still as strong. Have you found that that fallout from that point in time still plays out today? Well, uh, luckily, and uh, I think this applies to other journalists as well, 
we don't have to spend a lot of time on exclusive hacker forums to get the big stories. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, this is where the partnership between researchers and journalists steps in. So we have these researchers who specialize in monitoring the cybercrime underground. And when they find something interesting, they typically reach out to journalists and inform us about their findings. So uh, researchers, uh, we have researchers who work for cybersecurity firms. They will reach out to us because they want to boost their company's reputation. And we also have uh, independent researchers who might also want to boost their reputation. But uh, in many cases, uh, these researchers just want to play a part in making the internet safer. So they just want to warn users and uh, companies. And on the other hand, if as a journalist, you still want to get information firsthand, I don't think it's uh, very difficult to access cybercrime forums if you put enough effort into it. Ultimately, these underground marketplaces need as many users as possible to be profitable. You can't make a lot of money on a cybercrime forum that only has 10 vetted members. So the higher the number of members on a forum, the easier it is for journalists and researchers to gain access. Oh, what an insightful point to make. I haven't had someone make this point before. The economy of a platform and the number of users adding to the economy of this platform and there being no vetting structure really because that is primarily how it runs. Something I would sit on, and I think just very helpful to understand. If you don't mind, I'll dig into that just a bit more on several points. So first, the collaborative nature of cybersecurity researchers is helpful to hear. How often are journalists reaching out to cybersecurity vendors, or perhaps what forums do they go to to reach cybersecurity researchers for more information as well? Maybe for aspiring journalists that are listening in, this could be helpful to hear and also for my curiosity. I will give you an example for the past half a year. I think I haven't needed to access any cybercrime forums that would be more difficult to access. All the major stories in the past half a year, I think, I could find the information I needed for them on a hacker forum that's publicly accessible to anyone without even an account. So this is on the Surface web. You have the address, you just, I think you can do a Google search and type in that website's name and it will get you to the ad or the post advertising data for sale from a major vendor. So in many cases, if you're a hacker and you're selling some data, you want a broad audience to know about your offer. So they will go to as many forums as possible to advertise the data they have in hopes of making a sale. So it's often you don't even have to, of course, if you're researching a story and you want to go in depth, then you might want to reach out to a specialized intelligence company. For example, uh, we have uh, all these ransomware groups advertising uh, their hacks on their own websites where they leak data from uh, companies that have refused to pay up. And uh, you might have a new ransomware group that has a new website. 
And the best way to get the address of that website is to reach out to a specialized threat intelligence company. They will usually give you an, a response within an hour. Wow. If, if you're in their time zone, of course. <laughs> but uh, I find it uh, very useful to reach out to threat intelligence companies to get the addresses, the dark web addresses of ransomware groups. Uh, once you get that address, you can check the website whenever you need to. Yeah, so... You're, you're proving here ad simplicity is key. A year to five years from now, what do you think the cybercrime threat intelligence space will look like? Uh, well, uh, I believe that uh, companies that offer cybercrime threat intelligence solutions will continue to innovate. Even now, threat intelligence companies have done incredible work and they have advanced significantly both in terms of technology and human expertise. So we now see a single researcher who manages to identify high-profile cyber criminals. And uh, these guys, maybe they deserve to be identified unlike uh, APT actors for whom that might be their job. Hacking might be their job. When it comes to cyber criminals, maybe they don't deserve as much protection. So maybe we should name them and shame them. And we're, we're seeing today that a single researcher can sometimes identify these cyber criminals and make sure that law enforcement and authorities also know about them. But on the other hand, these cyber criminals will also continue to improve their tools and techniques as long as there is a profit to be made. And we see all these reports coming out that show that cybercrime still does pay off. They're making hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it's obviously a very lucrative business. So they will continue to innovate. And it will probably be a cat and mouse game for a good number of years. Do you think you'll be reporting on anything differently within the next year or two? Is there anything you're watching right now? And you think that will take over a good part of your research acumen as time progresses? I'm not sure. I don't like to make make predictions. I am curious. Yes. You might have seen that uh, the U.S. announced a national yes. cybersecurity strategy. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, once uh, at least some of those uh, topics uh, or some of those actions will be implemented, I'm curious to see if they will have any results. So they plan on taking a more offensive approach against mm -hmm. cybercrime and uh, at the same time beefing up the security of organizations. So I will be watching closely to see if that pays off in the, in the next years. Yeah. And whether or not the scrutiny on vendors and vendor promises, as well as third-party suppliers, will continue to weigh on organizations and the kind of scrutiny that they might add to their vendor questionnaires, the kind of scrutiny they might also add to the people they choose to do business with. So hopefully we see some quick momentum in that space. It seems to be one that's quite pressing. Let's end this on one last question, and that would be three pieces of advice that you would give, three key pieces of advice to security researchers, to journalists, and hey, in fact, to listeners. Well, uh, for uh, researchers, from a news reporter's perspective, of course, 
if you're doing research and you want the world to know about it and you want the help of journalists, the first thing to do is to make sure that uh, the researcher you're pitching to covers the type of research that you want to get out there. Ten years ago, I was working uh, with a handful of PR companies, and nearly every email they sent resulted in me writing an article. Now I, I'm at the point where I received 200 emails per day, hmm. and only a couple of them actually turn into something, because most of them are not relevant, even though they are cybersecurity stories, they are not the type of stories that we cover. So, for instance, here at Security Week, provide information to enterprise professionals and executives. So if you come to us with a story about uh, baby monitors getting hacked or a new consumer product <laughs> have developed, it's uh, not really a good fit for our audience. They're not going to care. You can contact us if you're aware of attacks targeting Cisco devices or if your company offers interesting enterprise security solutions. That's what we're interested in. Another uh, piece of advice would be to weigh the pros and cons of making information public. You want to make sure that the industry, the security industry and defenders get more help from you than the bad guys. So uh, any research that you make public, any information that you make public can potentially be used for uh, malicious purposes. But uh, some information is far more useful to threat actors than it is to defenders. Oh, okay. And uh, another point I'd like to make is that whatever information you're trying to get out there should be easy to understand. So cybersecurity companies and uh, independent researchers sometimes have uh, interesting information to share but uh, they don't know how to convey the information to a broad audience. So if you're trying to share highly technical information, you need to make sure that you also include a, a summary that uh, provides a high-level description that's easy to understand. In some cases, you might be targeting decision makers, and uh, they're not always very technical people. So if you just uh, share a bunch of code, that only a small audience understands without telling a story, a story to describe potential impact, that may not be the best way to do it. So always make sure that uh, you try to convey the information as best as you can for a broader audience. Hit the nail on the head with the last one. That's it. Absolutely. Um, I want to pick up that second piece of advice on adding scrutiny on what could help who and being very cautious about that. I definitely want to to think even on that. This has been a wonderful conversation. I thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. Just for our listeners here today, where can they keep up with your work? You're a prolific publisher and about some captivating things in the cybercrime world, and just cybersecurity general. So where can people find you? My work is, of course, available on securityweek.com. And I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can find me if you search for Edward Kovacs and uh, look for uh, this face. And <laughs> the profile picture is pretty similar. So you can find me there. Uh-huh. And also you can use those mediums, uh, the social media websites to 
10 tips if you have anything good that you want to share with the world. We're always open to working with researchers and any individual who just wants to raise awareness on a, an important topic. Thank you. And you heard it all, folks. We'll add all of Ed's information on the podcast materials that we release on LinkedIn and on all of your listening streaming platforms. Thank you for joining me again here today. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I'm sure you've gathered a lot. If you ever want to join in on the conversation here with Ed, even with myself on the Future of Cybercrime podcast, please feel free to reach out. Our lines are always open. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, this is the Future of Cybercrime podcast with Kella. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.